What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China's President Xi Jinping shocked the world when he pledged last week that the country would be carbon neutral in 40 years' time. That will be an enormous task. We ask how it can be done, if it can, and examine the global effects that could have. And Switzerland relies a lot on referendums to gauge the will of the people. One that happened this weekend involved a giant game of pickup sticks, and the outcome reveals the shifting attitudes the Swiss have towards the European Union. But first... You never give a tax return when you're being audited. They're extremely complex. People wouldn't understand them. Now the House goes and starts subpoenaing. They want to know every deal I've ever done. Since declaring his candidacy for president, Donald Trump has refused to share his tax returns and gone to court to stop them being released. But on Sunday, the New York Times published an investigation into more than 20 years' worth of Mr. Trump's taxes but not the documents behind them to protect its sources. The New York Times published an explosive report. Despite receiving over $400 million through 2018. A report showed he paid paltry amounts of federal tax in recent years. The report claims that Mr. Trump paid remarkably little tax since the turn of the millennium. It suggests that many of the president's businesses are chronically loss-making. And it puts numbers to just how deeply personally indebted the president is. The revelations prompted a familiar retort. It's fake news. It's totally fake news. Made up fake. We went through the same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, They are the same questions. Questions that arose in the presidential debate between Mr. Trump and Hillary Clinton almost exactly four years ago. Maybe he doesn't want the American people, all of you watching tonight, to know that he's paid nothing in federal taxes. Because Mr. Trump's rebuttal at the time? That makes me smart. That makes me smart. Tonight, another set of presidential debates, this time between Mr. Trump and Joe Biden. It seems certain that once again, Mr. Trump's accounting practices will figure into the discussion. The big headline takeaways are that he paid no federal income tax whatsoever in 10 of the 15 years through to 2017. And in... 2016-17, the year that he ran for the presidency, his first year holding the presidency, he paid only $750 in federal income tax. James Astle is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. His companies, his myriad companies, were making truly enormous losses over these years. President's companies have been losing hundreds of millions of dollars. He's heavily indebted at the same time. And the, the records also show us that hundreds of millions of debt, in fact, around 400 millions of debt that he's personally on the hook for, is liable 
to fall due mostly within the next couple of years. So it creates a picture of a heavily, heavily indebted, loss-making businessman on a truly gargantuan scale who has been paying little or no federal income tax and has serious debt worries ahead of him as he faces a cash crunch meanwhile. But how can it be he's paid so little tax over all of that time? I guess two main ways. One is that he appears to be setting a large amount of personal family expenditure against his business revenues. For example, he is setting his family home expenses, his plane expenses, even his apparently also colossal hairdressing expenses against that revenue. But by far the biggest means that he's avoiding paying large amounts of tax whilst taking in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue is by setting those revenues against the enormous losses that he's making overall. To give you just some taste of the scale of that loss making, it seems that the president has lost more than $300 million since the turn of the century on his golf courses alone. He's lost more than $55 million on his Washington, D.C. hotel, which has become a sort of symbol for Trump world of the president's firm hold on the capital. And yet it seems it's losing money hand over fist. And all of that is above board. He may already be in some difficulty over the scale of losses that he's claiming to set against his revenues. The long-trailed audit that his tax affairs are undergoing from the IRS, we learn, relate to a tax refund that he received a decade or so ago of $73 million related, it appears, to his loss-making casinos in Atlantic City, a business that he walked away from. Though we don't know, it appears that there is at least an allegation or a suspicion that he may have profited from those casinos even as he walked away from them. If that is the case, he's not liable for that tax refund. And that tax refund plus subsequent interest would now mean a $100 million bill for the president from the IRS. Are you yourself surprised? I mean, that the president has been fighting so hard to keep this under wraps. I just wonder how much you're surprised by what you see in these files. I don't think we're surprised by any of this. We already knew something of the scale of the president's loss making. He declared a loss of nearly a billion dollars back in the 90s, sufficient to avoid him paying any federal income tax for around a couple of decades. That was, in a sense, as remarkable as anything that we've learned from this latest enormous cache of additional detail. But there are a couple of really significant scoops in there. And the fact that he could be on the hook for so much money from the IRS if the audit goes against him, and the fact that he's personally liable for so many hundreds of millions of dollars of loan that will fall due in the next few years. That also is a very significant detail. And for those that that worry that the president may be compromised, that his indebtedness could lead him to make judgments that the American people might have cause to question, for those worries, this is, I think, sort of additionally inflaming. But I mean, the picture that emerges here, regardless of the creativity of the accounting, is somebody who is not running businesses very well. So Donald Trump entered politics back in 2015, claiming two things, that he would bring his business genius to the service of the American people and make their government work better, and that he would sort of right the wrongs that the lofty elite were habitually visiting upon the hardworking, vulnerable American people. And I think that there's the sort of broad takeaway 
from this trove of tax information is that either Donald Trump is an absolutely appalling businessman, in which case his first claim is hard to support, or he's bilking the treasury of millions of dollars of avoided tax that he should be paying, in which case his second contention is also rather hard to support. And do you think either, if, if either can be parsed or, or, or stood up, will they have any influence on the election, on the debates this week? Let's, let's break that down, Jason. I, I think that this is not going to be a sort of major vote-moving scandal. We've had equivalent scandals that have, that have not moved the president's support up or down much at all. And I think there's no reason to expect this to do so. And yet, it's significant. It's significant mostly because the president, opinion polls consistently tell us, is substantially behind Joe Biden in this race, with only little more than a month to go before the election. And what this does is put yet another hurdle in front of his trying to recommand the news cycle, get on the front foot, take the attack to Mr. Biden. And I, I think we may see some of that in the first presidential debate tonight, where Joe Biden has really been handed a script by the New York Times, a sort of opening attack on a president who loses so much money in his business affairs and pays such little tax as a result. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Last week, China's leader Xi Jinping delivered a climate announcement at the UN General Assembly. We aim to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. It was the first time that China had put a deadline on reaching carbon neutrality, 2060. Humankind can no longer afford to ignore the repeated warnings of nature and go down the beaten path. It's a big ask. To reach its 2060 target, China will have to descend from its emissions peak far more rapidly than any major economy ever has. China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, responsible for about a quarter of the total. It's also a huge consumer of coal. It's a huge producer of coal-powered electricity. Katrine Breyek is The Economist's environment editor. And so, obviously, what it chooses to do, how it chooses to tackle its future emissions, is hugely important for the global climate. And so, to an outside observer, then, the suggestion from President Xi was a, a complete surprise. Yeah, I, th- I think the statement that Xi Jinping made remotely to the UN General Assembly was a complete surprise. Certainly, everybody I spoke to was taken aback by it. We were anticipating that China was going to propose further emissions cuts at some point, but we had no idea what shape they were going to take. Certainly, they weren't really expected before the American election. The expectation was that 
the Chinese government was going to wait to find out who it was dealing with in the White House for the next four years before making its own move. And do you think that the targets that President Xi uh, announced are, are realistic? I mean, what will China have to do to bring its emissions down so drastically? It's going to require a complete restructuring of their energy system, their infrastructure, a rethink potentially of their green recovery plan from COVID-19. The scale of the task is enormous. China produces 60% of its electricity from coal. That can no longer be the case if it's going to eliminate its CO2 emissions by 2060. So it's going to have to massively ramp up renewables. Some studies previously had suggested that it might have to start looking into hydrogen, although that doesn't exist at scale at the minute. In terms of infrastructure, the challenge is enormous because a lot of the infrastructure that's being built now, including the energy infrastructure, has a shelf life of many decades. And so that's going to have to be rethought as well. But can China achieve these goals just by cutting emissions? There's going to have to be a degree of capturing emissions, whether that's directly at source from power stations or from ambient air. So capturing CO2 and storing it underground. This technology, carbon capture and storage, exists already, but it has not been developed at scale. And so the economic and industrial challenge there is considerable as well. One thing that China has working in its favor here is a willingness to develop nuclear, which is actually not in keeping with the trends in Europe and in the US. And so we probably will see a massive ramp up of nuclear power in China. So given the scope of that challenge, then, do you do you believe it can be done? Do you believe a, a good faith effort will be made here? I think a good faith effort will definitely be made. China doesn't tend to make bold declarations about climate change unless it has a bit of a plan, at least, and often a fully formed plan for how to achieve those goals. Now, Xi Jinping's comments were obviously extremely brief, and there was some fuzziness in his wording, which is going to probably matter quite a lot further down the line. On the one hand, he spoke of carbon neutrality and not climate neutrality or even net zero. And that is generally seen as shorthand for referring to CO2, carbon dioxide emissions only, not all greenhouse gas emissions. So that reduces the sort of pool of gases that need to be brought down to zero. The other thing that wasn't clear in Xi Jinping's statement was whether or not the 2060 target would apply to domestic emissions or if it would include exported emissions. China is by far the largest builder and investor in coal-fired power around the world. And so another extremely important element in terms of the global climate is addressing its exported emissions. Well, in terms of that global picture, let, let's take these commitments at face value. What does that then look like in terms of the, the global carbon balance? So the contribution is enormous, actually. The climate modelers whose job it is to take these sort of slightly woolly and nebulous political statements about climate change and translate them into projected temperatures or projected temperature changes. Prior to Xi Jinping's statements, we're saying that if everybody who'd promised something under the Paris Agreement were to stick to their word then we were looking at roughly 2.7 degrees of global warming above pre-industrial temperatures by the end of the century. China's contribution, and in particular the 2060 statement, knocks 0.2 to 0.3 degrees off of that all on its own. 
And, and what about other countries' pledges and promises? Do you think China's announcement here will, will spur others to greater action? Yeah, I think that's actually potentially quite an important part of this. So the big players, obviously, are China, the European Union, and the U.S., The European Union has already committed to climate neutrality, so that's all greenhouse gas emissions, coming down to net zero by 2050. If you add in, potentially, and this is a big if, a US contribution next year, if Biden were to win the American election, then we know that Biden would be looking at a net neutrality by mid-century target as well. So you'd have efforts being made to basically wipe off 45% of global emissions by mid-century. That starts to put you in the ballpark of the Paris Agreement's very ambitious target of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's a place we've never been before. Not so long ago, it seemed completely hopeless. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. For more on-the-ground insights like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. During both world wars, Switzerland adopted a policy of neutrality in an attempt to distance itself from the rest of Europe. Not easy for a country in the geographical center of the conflicts. Recently, it's again been considering its relationship with its neighbors. It's not a member of the European Union, but has long had a policy of freedom of movement with the EU, a policy that was the subject of a national vote this weekend. The referendum had been launched by the right-wing populist Swiss People's Party, the country's largest. But a liberal activist group with unusual methods appears to have stymied the effort, revealing a steady shift in Swiss politics. For the day of the Swiss referendum on freedom of movement with the EU, Operation Libero, a liberal activist group, plotted to come up with a media stunt to illustrate how closely Switzerland and Europe are interconnected. Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent. And what they came up with was a big game of what you call jack straws uh, or pickup sticks in the UK. Some people call it spillikins where you have to try to remove a stick from a pile without disturbing any of the others. And this one was really big with like two meter long sticks. And the idea was to illustrate that Swiss politics has been paralyzed for years by fear of discussions of a closer relationship with Europe because they are scared of populist resistance to the EU. And they were trying to say they shouldn't be scared because actually you have to play the game, you have to get involved in order to accomplish something. So who exactly is this activist group then? Operation Libero got started in 2014 after the Swiss People's Party, which is a populist right-wing party that's dominated Swiss politics since the 90s, staged a referendum. They have lots of referendums in Switzerland. And in this referendum, the idea was to stop freedom of movement with the EU. And unexpectedly, the referendum won with 50.3% of the vote. That kind of shocked a lot of Swiss liberals. And a bunch of young 20-something liberal activists put together this group, which started staging outreach campaigns, thought creatively about what kinds of media stunts you could pull off. They put their spokespeople out in the media to defend the case for better relations with the EU. And over the years after that, 
the Swiss People's Party kept coming up with new anti-EU initiatives, but each of those was defeated, in part because Operation Libero was such a successful activist communications group. And that was the case again this weekend? Yes. On Sunday, the topic was a sort of a rerun of the 2014 referendum, which was to force the government to renegotiate the freedom of movement agreement with the EU. In the end, on Sunday, 62% of Swiss voters voted against the referendum. That is, they voted to keep the current uh, agreement for freedom of movement with the EU. And that was something of a victory for Operation Libero. In the week before the referendum was held, I sat in on a planning meeting that they held for the media stunt that they wanted to hold on the day of the referendum. It's a very creative group. It's about half men, half women. Lara Zimmerman, the co-head, was calling in via video conferencing. We are very much in need to move forward in, in, in European politics. And Nina Burkhardt, who's a lawyer at the University of Zurich Law School and a member of the steering committee, And uh, she talked about how times have changed and how the Swiss public has grown more progressive over time and more uh, eager to see closer cooperation with the European Union. I mean, we are more integrated into the EU than many EU members actually are, if you take some, you know, factors or relevant numbers. But then on the other hand, we have that really long tradition that we are a self-determined holy island um, and we sort of glorify that story and that narrative for a really long time. So I think that's, apart from, you know, the success of the right-wing party, this is really a difficult starting point. So with the continued success of Operation Libero's efforts and the sort of stymieing of what the SVP party wants, are you, do, do you get the feeling we're seeing a, a realignment in Swiss politics more broadly? Yes and no. Switzerland has a relatively conservative political culture. It has a very independent self-image. But what we are definitely seeing is that the Swiss anxiety over immigration and the anxiety over a tighter relationship with Europe, which they're surrounded by, has ebbed over the last five years, certainly. And they're now more open to thinking about a clearer, closer institutional relationship with the EU. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.